Good morning. It's a joy to see all of you here, and I am thankful for the opportunity to continue this series uh, on key defining themes which have defined our history over our 100 years as part of our centennial celebration. Uh, we've looked, as Jessica mentioned, we looked at several of these already, such as our commitment to the Word of God, our emphasis on entire sanctification, our commitment to world evangelization. Uh, next time we'll be on the, the role of women in ministry because we have been training men and women and so forth that will go throughout the year. But today our focus is on our historic commitment to theological education. And I want to, uh, if I can dedicate this sermon, uh, I will to our faculty and I'll t even to all our students in degree programs or non-degree programs. If you're here in this room, I dedicate it to you. <laughs> um, Malcolm Gladwell, in his best-selling book, um, Outliers, The Story of Success, he highlights what he calls the 10,000-hour rule. And what he discovered was that it doesn't matter what field you are in, in order for you to become competent in that field, it requires 10,000 hours of dedicated, focused work. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of exception to that. I mean, for example, I mean, he goes through all of this. It's kind of a rule of thumb for him, but apparently the Beatles spent 10,000 hours of playing in small clubs before they were able to launch their successful musical career. Bill Gates, it turns out, spent 10,000 hours learning about computers and software before launching Microsoft. So you might say he should have spent 15,000 hours, but that's another story. <laughs> Just joking. Um, Med, med, uh, doctors, uh, if you look, look at the time spent in medical residency and classroom instruction, amazingly comes out to around 10,000 hours. He looked at famous violin players and piano players, and they have in common 10,000 hours of practice. I hear, don't hear any amens out there? <laughs> I don't know, I see Danny Key here. Danny, do you have 10,000 hours on the drums? Where's Danny? <laughs> 10,000 on the drums, I'm sure. Um, he even noticed the same thing with chess masters. Uh, number one grand champion, Magnus Carlsen from Norway, if you don't know him, amazing chess master, 10,000 hours of playing chess before he became able to compete at that level. When I read that, I couldn't help but think that this is true for us as well. In fact, the disciples, if you look at the daylight hours with Jesus, it kind of comes down to around 10,000 hours spent with Jesus. This really is an important point. The point is, if you're going to excel in your life, in your ministry, there is no pathway which bypasses the need for you to spend thousands of hours of dedicated, focused study. Now, the people who say, well, you know, it's really 9,000 hours. Oh, no, it's really 11,000. And this is the point. It's not the point about the 10,000 rule per se. The point is, thousands and thousands of hours of dedicated learning and study. We live in an age which looks at ministry and often will say, let's find a way that's easy, quick, and cheap. But discipleship is always hard, long, and costly. That's the way it is. And you can't wish that away. We live in a time which loves minimalistic solutions which require the least effort, What's actually required is maximal solutions requiring the most effort. We have a culture that longs for comfortable shortcuts. What's required is a long, arduous journey. And I want to admonish you 
to embrace that. I, I love that book by Eugene Peterson's a classic now, the title which was A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's really, really an important theme for us, and this is what I want to focus on here this morning, because if you're in a seminary, you're preparing to be a pastor, or a counselor, or a teacher, or a missionary, or head of Christian ministry, whatever it may be, it requires 10,000 hours of study and practice. If you spend your time playing video games, Netflix, TikTok, it can drain away your ability to spend 10,000 hours. I'm not against video games. I, I never have really played one, but I'm in, 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 like in theory, I'm, all, I'm not against it. I, I, I don't have Netflix. I'm not, I'm not anti-Netflix. Uh, TikTok, I have watched Zach King's magical compilation. I have done it. I have seen it. Everyone should go see Zach King's magical compilation on TikTok. It takes a minute. But that's about all I want to give to it. The point is, is, this is not about anti-anything. It's about learning to understand the gift of this period of your life, right? And Gladwell actually makes the point in his book where he says, practice isn't the thing you do once you're good. It's the thing that makes you good. You're good to give yourself wholeheartedly to your theological studies is actually at the heart of what it means to love God. Now, what Jesus says in the great commandment, and we often misquote it, or I should say underquote what he actually says. And by the way, this is in all the synoptics. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, uh, strength, and mind. One says mind and strength, one says strength and mind. But the mind, uh, dianoia, is in every single one of those renditions. So what Christ is saying is not just a matter of the heart, it's also a matter of your mind. Now, when we talk about formation in our tradition, I'm kind of speaking about broadly, not so much Asbury, but just in the Wesleyan world, I get a lot of statements out there. I hear things that tend to pit the heart against the head. You know, well, in fact, in our worst virulent form, it's actually the mind can be impediment to your heart formation. Right, and so we, we end up with these strange dichotomies where we, we embrace kind of emotive subjectivism rather than understanding the importance of preparing your mind for action. I know that, uh, you know, this phrase from Wesley has got us into enormous trouble. It was a total misreading of Wesley when Wesley says, warm heart, give me thine hand. That has got to be the most misquoted statement of Wesley. I'm sure if you were alive today, he would take it back. But what it's come to mean is, if someone has a warm heart, give them your hand, embrace them, and it doesn't matter how heretical, how reckless, how disruptive this is, the whole history of the church, embrace them, oh, because they have a warm heart. No, they're wrong. You need to warm-heartedly tell them that. But the point is, <laughs> you cannot let a warm heart undermine the importance of thinking through theologically the implications of what said proposal whatever it may be. It's really important that we understand this point. My question this morning is, what does it mean to love God with your mind? And our text today from 1 Peter has a, it's amazing, it comes from Peter, where he himself says in this text, gird up the loins of your mind. The NRSV kind of domesticates the whole verse by saying, prepare your minds for action. Okay, it makes a lot of sense in the modern world. But I want to really emphasize the fact that what it literally says is gird up 
the loins of your mind. Did you know your mind had loins? <laughs> yes, it does. The word is osphus. It's a really important theological word. It's used eight times in the New Testament. And what happens in modern translations is that it gets dispersed among a wide range of words. So, for example, the, the RSV has it translate one place waste, one place dress, one place descendants, one place loins. And, in fact, in our NRSV, uh, it's left out of our translation here completely. Now, osphus means loins. It's a word that doesn't really resonate with the average English speaker, and so it gets dropped out. But that's important because in the Old Testament, loins is very important. And therefore, the loins language, which we'll look at in a minute, is the kind of the revelatory chess pieces that make up what this word means when it's used in the New Testament. So let me just really briefly uh, overview the four ways it's used in the Old Testament if you go to the Septuagint and see how it's translated in the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament. What you first find is that it is clearly a word used for readiness. It's a symbol of readiness. So in First Samuel, I mean, for Exodus 12, 11, a text where this word is used, where they're, this is the night of the Passover, and they're preparing for this, you know, the Exodus. And the Lord tells them in that text that he said, this is how you should eat the first Passover. Your loins should be girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. They're eating a meal fully, like, ready to go. Now, they, like us, when you come home from night, a work of, you know, a day of study, whatever, many of you will maybe change clothes, relax, you know, typically speaking at least, like unbuckle your belt. You know, you're holding as you get more comfortable at night. This is saying, no, no, don't, in this case, don't do that. You have to eat, actually, with your staff in your hand, girded. It's a symbol of being ready on, on a dime to get on the move. Now, so when Jesus uh, draws on this image in Luke 12, 3 to 5, he talks about the same kind of Passover readiness in preparing for his return. You know, don't loosen your girdles, don't, don't uh, loosen your loins, don't, in other words, don't loosen your belt, in other words, don't relax and pretend that Christ cannot come back today, any minute. He wants the church to live in readiness, right? So he says in Luke 12, 35, the translation says, be dressed for action, but actually what it means, the word is literally Gird your loins for action. Now, if you spend 10,000 hours of focused study, then you will be girding your minds for action. So when something comes up, you're ready to give a response because you have prepared yourself to think about things, and you, the minute you hear something, you will know how to respond. Our kids, when our kids were growing up, they used to always accuse my wife and I whenever we heard any random statement said in any situation on a billboard, on the radio, or in a conversation, or even a church sermon occasionally, or more than occasionally, we would go home and we would dissect it theologically. And it became a big part of our family gatherings. And our kids used to say to us, like, do we have to dissect every billboard that we pass or whatever? And it became a joke in our family. Number two, it's used as a symbol of the prophetic mantle, uh, as such with Elijah. So Elijah is pictured as a prophet with a belt girded around his waist. And remember after the whole, you know, he's waiting for the rain to come, the, the, the cloud as small as a hand, and eventually he does this amazing move in 1 Kings 18, 16, or 18, 46, where he runs and outruns uh, all the way to King Ahab to Jezreel. 
Now, the whole point of that, it says that Elijah girded up his loins and ran, and he outran Ahab to Jezreel. It becomes a sign of the prophet. So when John the Baptist comes along, years later, we're told he is uh, girded up with the same clothing and so forth. It's not meant simply to say, hey, we want to tell you about John the Baptist's clothing. We want to compare his fashion to Elijah. It's actually about making a parallel that John the Baptist is in this prophetic mode and his, his loins are girded in the same way. It's a prophetic symbol. And so what the point is, is that as you prepare for ministry here, whatever it may be, you are enabling your prophetic ministry. See, the problem that one of the changes that seminaries has brought is that when I was going through, if you look at the fivefold ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, seminaries focused on two of those. We focused on training pastors and teachers. Like, that's what we did. If you train pastors and teachers today, we will fail the church. And we have to train pastors and teachers, a lot of them, but we have to also train apostles and prophets and evangelists. We have to train for all the ministries. So we're in a position now where some of you feel like on your back heels because you were thinking you were going to go into the pastorate when you need to go into a prophetic ministry. I, I think even being a pastor today requires a prophetic kind of ministry in a way that didn't 30 years ago. So there's a readiness that's required for that and a learning that's required for that. Thirdly, it's a symbol of generative power. Uh, Solomon was told when he was anointed as king that David would come from his uh, loins. That's a strange thing. The NRSV, uh, once again, obscures it by saying in 2 Chronicles 6, 9, the son who shall be born to you. The text actually says the son who shall come from your loins. It's osphus in the Septuagint. Now, they were seeing the symbolic use of loins. Remember in Hebrews, she's multiple time in Hebrews, they're trying to figure out how to resolve the fact that Jesus is both the, uh, the, king, the, the king from the line of Judah, which of course is his natural heir, that of David, but he has to also be the high priest. You can't reconcile that in normal Jewish ways. He's not from the tribe of Levi. That's a theological problem. So they resolve it through, amazingly, loin theology. That's how they resolve it. They could have resolved it actually in a lot of easier ways from the Old Testament, but they chose this because it apparently was important to them. And they said, well, the reason that it's resolved is that when Abraham went and gave tithes to Melchizedek, Levi was still in his loins. So, the, so through Abraham tithing, Levi was tithing because he was in the body of Abraham, in his loins. Now, none of us here as Americans, we think of ourselves as ourselves, but what you have to see is everyone who will come from you is inside of you. That's a scary thought. You are, you have a generative power to produce offspring. This, of course, applies spiritually in the New Testament as well as literally. We all have progeny that comes from us and our discipleship and, and literally raising children, all the rest. It's a very important generative power and we should not uh, miss that in terms of our role in discipleship. Fourthly, it's a symbol of the Messiah. Uh, you have the uh, prophet Isaiah says, righteousness shall be the belt on his waist and faithfulness the belt on his loins. Again, it uses the word osphus in the Septuagint. It's about messianic authority. So Paul 
picks up on loin theology. We don't know it because it's not used in the New Testament and, and like that language in English, but he says, Ephesians 6.14, stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the blessed righteousness. The very first ar armament for us is to fasten the belt of truth. It actually says, gird your loins with truth. Now what that's telling us is that if we want to really faithfully represent the Messiah in the world, then we have to be girded with truth. It's not just an idea. It's not just a warm heart for Jesus. It's not that they want to, the world wants to domesticate Jesus into just something that they can put in their image. But in fact, Jesus represents a whole theology of reality that we have to represent into the world. So that's the background you need to understand 1 Peter 1.13. When he says, gird the, the loins of your mind for action, he's talking about being sharp and poised, ready for action, uh, girded with truth, be attentive to their, your spiritual descendants. All of these things are caught up in that. Now, I've been uh, preaching from this pulpit uh, for 13 and a half years. It's a great privilege that uh, we actually call this the Ellsworth Callus pulpit, which is humbling because he really preached from this pulpit. And um, I, in my entire time here, I've never said much or anything actually about my own doctoral studies, but I want to say a word about it today. Um, my pathway was I did my MDiv at Gordon-Conwell. It was a lot like what many of you who are in those kind of programs went through, so I won't say more about that. I later did my THM in Islam at Princeton, and I spent uh, countless hours. So I spent 10,000 hours in my MDiv studies preparing for my pastoral ministry. Later on, when I transitioned to academic work, I spent uh, another 10,000 hours studying Islam, the Quran. I spent many, 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 many hours, countless hours in the Quran. And then later, I went to my PhD in Edinburgh to study Hinduism and the Christian response to Hinduism. Now, if you know uh, PhD studies, you'll know that part of the, like, the thing that makes it challenging is that you must learn some academic language other than the one that you speak. So I, um, in my case, for many it's like German or Latin or whatever, but in my case, I had to learn Sanskrit. So Sanskrit uh, is a challenging language to learn. I spent years, several years, uh, pretty much doing that. I mean, I was just stuck in, uh, you know, a, I have a lot of memories of being stuck in a carol in a library, in a dusty library, learning Sanskrit. And Sanskrit, not to get too uh, much on it, but Sanskrit is a strange language because it's not an alphabet like, like English or German or whatever. It is not a, uh, doesn't have logograms like, like Chinese. It's something kind of in between. So Sanskrit is called a syllabary. A syllabary is a language that doesn't have letters at all, but it only has sound. So, so like the consonants would be not like B, C, D, F, it'd be ba, ka, da, fa, et cetera. So in Sanskrit, every symbol, every letter you might say, is actually a sound with an automatic short A after it. Now the problem with Sanskrit, like, like any language you can imagine, if you don't want to have a short A, you want to have other kind of vowels, it's a very creative way to you have to insert vowels into things. And then the big challenge is there are many, many hundreds, thousands of examples where you want two consonants side by side without a sound. 
And so in Sanskrit, there's a process, and this actually happens in Chinese in, in terms of tones, but in, in Sanskrit it happens through symbols. So when these two consonants that don't have any symbol, any vowel at all, they have to collide together. And they create another, another uh, letter altogether. So part of the job of learning Sanskrit is to memorize hundreds of the possible consonant collisions. It's called sandhi in, uh, in grammar. And it's mostly found in Indian languages. If that wasn't enough, um, most languages go reliably from left to right, like English, or like Hebrew, right to left. Uh, Sanskrit doesn't always do that. It mostly goes left to right, but sometimes it'll pause and go back left again, and there's times it goes up and down. So Sanskrit can be le read left to right, sometimes right to left, sometimes up and down. It is uh, challenging. I spent several years figuring that out. Now, my dissertation figure was a man named Brahmabhanta Upadhyaya, uh, which is a big word. Um, our kids, when they were very young, got they could say this with great pride, Brahmabhanta Upadhyaya, because they heard me talk about it so much. But uh, Brahmabhanta is the Sanskrit equivalent of Theophilus. It means lover of God. And Upadhyaya means teacher. This was a baptismal name of this man that I studied. And his basic project, of all projects, was to reconcile Thomas Aquinas with Adi Shankara, which is the great Hindu philosopher uh, of the 8th century. And of course, Aquinas, the 13th century teacher of the Roman Catholic Church. And the minute you have to learn Thomas Aquinas, uh, you got 10,000 hours ahead of you. Uh, oh my goodness, I spent countless hours studying the Summa Theologica, the Summa Contra Gentiles, and then to study uh, years of Shankara in order to even understand the writings of my uh, writer, which, by the way, also involves Sanskrit. Anyway, all that goes on and on and on, but the, the, and I'm getting to this point. I came, one of the apex of my doctoral studies was the translation of a particular hymn that he wrote, Brahmavantavivadaya, called Satchinananda. It's a very famous hymn in India. It's a hymn to the triune God. It was a hymn written uh, using images from Hinduism and popular Hinduism and philosophical Hinduism to, to, to talk about the Trinity. So this hymn, the first verse is on the triune God, verse 2 on the Father, verse 3 on the Son, verse 3 on the Holy Spirit, verse 4 on the Holy Spirit. So I found out in the course of my studies and this whole thing, this, my doctoral work, that there was a discrepancy and scholars didn't agree that are in index, index studies, they didn't agree on the translation of verse 4 of this hymn. It was a big thing and people talk, and this, you wouldn't know about this, but it's a thing. So I couldn't, I couldn't resolve it. I mean, I had no way to resolving this. So finally, I decide, by the way, let me show you on the overhead uh, what the problem was. The problem is in verse 4, and, I, and this is the, the, if you'll notice the word, two words there on the left, I have it, finally you can read it, it's the word dhanam, and the word on the right, ganam. Now if you look at those two words carefully, you'll notice there's no difference between the three letters except for the little line on top that connects the, on the top. The Sanskrit letters like hang on like a clothesline. And so this little line, if it's connected, it's gunam. If it's broken, it's dunam. Now if it, it, it can either mean wealth or it can mean intense bliss. It's a big difference and it really affects the translation in a big way. 
So, by the way, the little line there, little, little, little line there, that's how, in this particular case, how you get rid of that, that ah sound at the end of the M. So that's why it's not dunam ah, it's just dunam or gunam. That's how you cancel that A. But anyway, so <laughs> I'm in the, I, I realize at some point, I have to resolve this. My PhD to her, to, is dependent on that. I have to turn to this him, and I've got to do it in, translate in English, and I've got to figure out what he said. So I eventually get on a plane. I, I, my only option was to go fly to Calcutta and go to the St. Xavier's Library where this document, the original, was found and find it and look at it and examine it. It's a long story, another sermon, how I eventually got there and got access to this archives, but I did. And I, the day came and I was given into my hands over 100 years old uh, copy of this hymn, the original version of this hymn. So I look down and my heart is beating with such excitement. <laughs> I can't tell you how excited I was. And this was like, this was like the apex of my academic career, looking at this hymn. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it was happening. And I was very tempted to glance down to verse 4, like and go ahead and resolve the problem. No, oh, no, Tenet, hold yourself back. And let's just go through the hymn slowly and just let it unfold. So I started at the beginning. I made my way down the hymn, verse 1. It's a beautiful, beautiful hymn, beautiful hymn. I finally get to verse 4. I'm getting very close to that place where it says either Dunham or Gunham. I'm so excited to learn. And I look, and my eyes blink. And I, I got my glasses off, and I, I come out, I was looking again, and I can't believe it. I can't believe what I, what I discovered. I'm holding this, my hand is trembling. And I discovered that at that point, a book lice, which we often call bookworm, had eaten his way through a sack of, ma of archival manuscripts and had eaten through <laughs> the line, the exact spot that made the difference between Dunham and Gunham, which probably explains the textual variation. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. The actual original copy had a wormhole, and the worm had been very efficient to eat the entire line at that spot and obscure the meaning of the word. And I sat there and I thought, oh my goodness, a bookworm stands between me and my PhD. <laughs> I took it all the way to India, and it was all over with. <clears throat> well, it had taken me thousands and thousands of hours to be able to sit there that day and read that hymn. It's true for counseling. I, I don't know counseling. I, don't, I haven't spent 10,000 hours in counseling. I, when I talk to counselors, I say, well, they'll say, what do you want counseling? I'll say, very little. I, I could put everything I want counseling in a small thimble. But I'm glad somebody understands counseling. And they have their 10,000 hours. And, you know, if you're in church history, you have your 10,000 hours. Dr. O'Malley's here. He's got hundreds of thousands of hours. <laughs> you know, on and on and on it goes. Uh, by the way, I did resolve this problem in academia. It's my one little tiny contribution to academia uh, in terms of this hymn. Because Brahma Bhantavibhadhyaya, at that point of the word, and he did this throughout the hymn, actually. He had written little, like, little like, like what we call footnote marks. It wasn't the same what we call footnote marks. But, and he, he actually made comments on why he chose certain words. And I'm so glad he had footnoted that word, and he explained what he meant. 
and it was clearly Gunham, not Dunham. So if it was Dunham, it would mean like wealth, meaning the Holy Spirit gives you gifts. If it was Gunham, it was about his ontology, the nature of the Spirit. It's a, it's a, it was a great moment in my life, all through a book lice. But the point of this is that this, this is what life is like. I, when I was a pastor, I, I, I didn't write my sermons on Saturday night. I didn't write my sermons on Saturday night. I mean, I did a couple of times. I had two, two funerals during the week, but I, my practice was to write and work on my sermons all during the week. Uh, if I, when I was a pastor, we, we, our church grew by the grace of God, but also because we spent a lot of hard work in identifying who's moving into our community, how do we connect, connect with them. The whole point is about a hard work, dedicated work. Very, very important. Um, we must gird our minds for action. And this is a special window of time in your life where you are given to devote and gain those 10,000 hours. This is your moment. Don't lose it. It doesn't matter whether your domination requires the MDiv or not, or whether some potential counseling program will hire you without a KCREP degree or not. The point is, you require it of yourself. You want to be fully equipped. You want to gird your mind for action. You want to maximize your ministry. A dull sword is not as effective as a sharp sword. That's what you want to understand. You may, someone may say to you, well, the minimalistic path, you can get by, you can get through. Either the church will allow it, you won't allow it. Because you want the very best for your future and for your life. And by the way, when I came to Asbury, I had to go through the whole process all over again. I didn't know how to run a seminary. I didn't understand a lot of economic matters, you know. I had to spend thousands of hours of learning how to be a president. It, it's not like a, it happens all through your life, and many of you will go through multiple stages, but you have to be able to gird your mind for action to be effective in whatever you do. Now, this is the time and invitation for you to stand up and stand out for your own future ministry. I cannot tell you enough how important it is that you dedicate your time. And do, you cannot, and believe me, Wesley believe this, you do not have time to waste time. You don't have time to waste time. You must totally give yourself to this time and this effort. Now's the time to learn theology. Now's the time to learn church history. Now's the time to learn about counseling practice, biblical texts, biblical languages. Your, your degree doesn't require learning Greek. It doesn't matter. You require it yourself. You go learn Greek. Really, do it. Make it happen. That, that's the point. You, you think about your degree not in terms of requirements, but in terms of your own preparation and what you want to do, what you want to, what you want to accomplish in your life. We have one of the greatest faculties in the world assembled here with expertise in every possible field of Christian study and preparation. It's a tremendous gift from God. And it's here. they're here. They're here. And you want to take advantage of their lives and their background. So, Peter says, gird your minds for action. It is not something that can be done at this altar. And you know how important I believe this altar is. It's done at the other altar, which is your desk. And I, believe, I love the Latin phrase, ox scrinum ara est. The desk is the altar. 
you have multiple altars in your life, and there are certain things that God can do in your life right here in an instant. There are some things that are only done through 10,000 hours. Thanks be to God. Amen.